Welcome to another episode of Dice Talk. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jerundu. And we have an awesome episode planned for you today. We actually have a special guest, Wolfgang Bauer from the Cobalt Press. Wolfgang, can you just introduce yourself to our audience, uh, let them know a little bit about what you do, what Cobalt Press is, and why you're on our podcast today? Sure. Um, yeah, Wolfgang Bauer. I'm the founder and publisher and Cobalt in Chief over at Cobalt Press. We publish uh, third-party products for uh, fifth edition D&D, and we're probably best known for being one of the design studios that Wizards of the Coast tapped uh, to write Ghosts of Saltmarsh and the Tyranny of Dragons. Um, so we work, we tend to be an old tool house that works closely with my uh, my old colleagues at Wizards of the Coast. I haven't worked there in like 25 years, but I still know who they are. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, I've checked out a lot of different Cobalt Press products. I own a few of them, especially some of the kind of uh, monster options you have, like Tome of Beasts and uh, Creature Codex and all of that. Oh, Tome of Beasts. Yeah, that is the book that I know gets passed around um, at tables and used with glee by Dungeon Masters. Um, it is 400 new monsters, fifth edition, beautifully illustrated. And how do I put this? Slightly tougher than the power curve on the monster manual <laughs> is pretty much where we're at because we like a challenge. We like challenging players. So the Tome of Beasts is uh, one notch harder monsters. Yeah, I mean, I love the Tome of Beasts from, you know, obviously I haven't had a chance to run every monster, but I've probably, you know, ran, I don't know, a couple dozen of them and I've definitely read through all of it more than a couple times. It's I can definitely see what you're saying about it being a little bit more challenging, like above the curve, <laughs> but I like that. Like it's it should be challenging. It, it's not brutally, you know, undoable, but it's it's harder. And and I can um I can point the finger at Steve Winner, who uh, uh who was the developer on the book as we had discussions, he and I, about how tough should all this stuff be? Because we play tested the whole thing, right? Um and and we looked at the numbers that we Steve made a spreadsheet of the entire monster manual saying this is how tough an average monster is and reverse engineered the toughness and the CR ratings. And then we did our play tests and people came back to us and said that was too easy for a CR three or whatever. And Steve said, well, do we believe our play testers or do we believe the power curve on the monster manual? And I said, uh, I'm going to believe the play testers. So it wasn't just an internal decision, right? Where Steve and I said, we're going to be, we're going to be bastards. We're going to make it hard. <laughs> no, we, we actually based it on, on actual play. I think that's, was well, excellent that that's the case. And obviously I think it obviously benefits the final product um, to the, to the extent that um, Jeremy is secretly fanboying behind his, austere um, <laughs> <laughs> collected appearance well i mean if it inspires if it inspires somebody like you know you pick out a monster you throw it at your players they've never heard of it before i think that's a big part of why a third party DD monster book is popular right because let's face it after we've played for a few years we know what an orc is we know what a you know what a triant does we we have our sense of where an ogre's at mm. but if you bring in a shadow fae or you decide to bring an exploding toad to the tabletop nobody knows what that is right away yeah absolutely i think it keeps um encounters fresh um and sort of stops the you know, stops the inherent tendency we all as role players try not to metagame unless it's appropriate but you can't kind of help it if you know what a troll is 
right? Of course, trolls fear fire. This is good to know. And it's fun to be knowledgeable, right? Like as a player, I I think that sense of mastery that, oh, I have just the right spell for this, or let's let's do the one thing, let's bless these crossbow bolts. And you know, that's great, but it's also fun to be scared yeah. because you don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's the fear of the un- the literal fear of the unknown. It's like, what what is this? <laughs> How do we counter it? I mean, the first games anybody plays make a huge impression, mm. and it's hard to get that sense back of it's all new. Yeah. Um. So we try to claw that back. Yeah, I like that the the sort of psychology of um, of using new uh, monsters with the uh, added benefit of knowing that they've been thoroughly play tested and, and and so on it's just one of the scariest words i think you can hear um uh oh i homebrewed it All it's new. balanced oh i homebrewed it yeah <laughs> it's balanced i homebrewed it <laughs> i know what you're saying and sometimes it's like yeah i you know i give it just a few hit points and you know 12 d 12 damage it's balanced it just takes one hit um <laughs> i mean cobalt press actually has a long reputation of of starting as a homebrewer's mm. paradise and and supporting homebrewers we've got this series of books the the cobalt guides right cobalt guides to game design and all of them are meant are written by people like keith baker or margaret weiss or money cook or me frankly um to help homebrewers see what like professional mm. designers think about when they're doing world building or plotting a campaign or or brewing up a monster mm. And it's not all numbers crunch. Sometimes it's just, are you thinking about how it fits into your game as a whole or how players react? Um, I don't know. It's tips and tricks and they're, they're fun little guides and they've won a few awards. And I, I feel like Cobalt Press is out there rooting for the homebrewer every time. Yeah. Uh, and in the monster books, even right. We, we have a, kickstarter for tome of beast three right now and we're taking submissions from backers monsters hmm. um that are essentially homebrewed designed somewhere and then we're going to put five judges in a room for a week read them all and and pick the best ones and you know pay the writers congratulate them and go out to professional artists and publish them but wow frankly we're taking a chance on a few dozen you know dms at home who have who have their favorite monster and are willing to share it with the world and you know be paid and published for their trouble absolutely so. well i didn't mean to imply that i was um uh dumping on uh homebrew I've, i hope, i know home, homebrew extensively myself um I, I think most game masters do at some point right yeah like you have a fun idea and you want to run with it and some people quickly discover that it's a fair bit of work. Absolutely. It's easy to come up with an idea. It's less easy to make it um, compatible with the game. And yeah, compatible. exactly. Yes. And having those kind of insights available from people like yourselves be really invaluable. Yeah. I mean, I want to encourage everybody to try homebrewing for a while. Mm-hmm. Some of them, I mean, actually, Sly Flourish, Mike Che is, is sort of notorious for saying, publish books are worth every penny they saved me tons of time you know an entire team of people has worked to make this adventure or this monster book illustrators playtesters it, it saves so much work homebrewing I, I mean he runs a lot of professionally published campaigns uh, at his table and so do i right because one doesn't always have the time to do homebrew but it's deeply satisfying to do i mean 
if you get me started on world building, I'll I'll eat up the next 40 <laughs> minutes. But you were saying you kind of have like an open call for Toma Beast 3. Is that something you've done in the past? Have you for any of the other monster books? Have you asked for fan submissions? Yes. Every single one of the Toma Beasts has had this open call. Um and and they've all been the same sort of deal. If you back the project on Kickstarter, you can send in one monster, just one, right? Pick your best one and send it in. And there's a, a word count cap and like, you know, you retain the rights. If we don't publish it, we pay you if we do. But basically it's our chance to look at a bunch of people we've never seen work from. And it's a chance for backers to just kind of say, I don't know, have I got a good idea? Will this fly? And then the monsters that get published, the best of them usually become fan favorites, right? Um, there's crazy stuff in there. Some of it's really weird. Some of it's just really useful stuff. The, the weird one from Tomo Beast 2 was called The Snake with 100 Mage Hands. <laughs> Which the judges saw it and said, yeah, you know, the problem with snakes is they don't have hands. And this gets around that problem. And also, <laughs> we want to see the illustration. Uh, <laughs> and it's just a wonderfully designed monster. And it's it's obviously not something you use every day, but you put it in a tomb or some, you know, snake cult temple or something, and it fits perfectly. Um, there was another one called the Swolbald, which of course is the weightlifting kobold, all pumped, all muscle, very popular with the fans. Um, and, and, you know, I think we published probably somewhere between 25 and 50 monsters, depending on the volume. Um, and and yeah, they're they're highly imaginative. The mechanics are great. And one of the people, um, Sebastian Rumbach, did I think his first he submitted a backer monster four years ago. And for Tumblebee's three, he's now one of our regulars. He's writing like 50 monsters out of the 400, 40 monsters out of 400. Wow. Because he's just so good. So yeah. for him, it it was the first step into what is, you know a little bit of a freelancing career. I, I don't know, right? You never know how far it's going to go. Absolutely. Uh, I say the same thing to a lot of people. Is you, We all have to start somewhere, and it doesn't matter when you make that step. It's how willing you are to persist going down the road, really. Right? I mean, each of the people who had something published in Atomo Beast, they beat out, you know, 800, 900, 1,000 other people mm -hmm. for that slot. Um so clearly they're doing something right and i think it's encouraging some of them are just like great my monster got published i'm done yeah 25 to 50 is a, quite an undertaking because i've written a couple things for like dms guild and i'll make maybe you know three or four monster blocks for like a whole story or something yeah and that takes time and that takes testing or i realize this is way more challenging than i mm -hmm. planned or this isn't challenging enough or i don't know to me like writing the stats wasn't as exciting as coming up with the idea for the monster so that's 25 to 50 sounds like a lot of work it is and honestly the <laughs> we if we could we'd do a monster book every year but it's just not possible because we spend a year in design and play test before we launch the kickstarter right like it takes that long to get 400 monsters written illustrated and tested and even then we have an external play test as well right so yeah, it, every two or three years we'll do a monster book or or something on that scale. I mean, we've done books of magic as well. Uh, 
Vault of Magic, Deep Magic, those sorts of more player-focused items, spells, subclasses, things. It's not that we're just the company that does the monster, <laughs> but it is it is probably what we're best at. Yeah, I think that's where I first encountered the Kobold Press. Um, like this newest one, Tome of Beasts 3, I've backed it on Kickstarter, but by the time I came and found Tome of Beasts 1 and 2 and the Creature Codex, that was in my local bookstore. Like yeah. That was the first time I heard of you all. And I remember finding one of these monster books and then being like, wait, there's more like there's two more whole books. And now you have the third one. Yeah, no, it's I mean, that's what are we talking about now? Since 2015 was the first one. And I think it shipped early in 2016. Yeah, it's been about seven years. So, yeah, (laughs) it's a chunk of work. But every other year or so we we take a run at it and we've gotten smarter about it. Right. Like how we run play tests has to have gotten smart. The audience for it is much bigger now. Mm. Um, it, we recruit more judges than we used to because the level of the volume of submissions is pretty high. Um, and, and we just want to, want to put our best foot forward every time and, and just keep getting better at it. Yeah. How do you go about playtesting? Do you have like a, a small group you source it to? Or, I mean, do you all just sit in a room and do battle after battle? Well, there's an internal playtest that basically goes out to, I don't know what I'd call it, the super fans, the people who follow everything Cobalt Press does. And those folks, uh, we recruit from the Warlock Patreon. Uh, it's really the Cobalt Press Patreon, but we call it Warlock because we thought we were being clever. It's Patreon <laughs> and it's a Warlock, right? Anyway, uh, <laughs> so we did that. It's a black and white zine we put out, and we do. We've done like sixty short layers and adventures, and we give people a shot at playtesting stuff early, right before the Kickstarter happened. We said, "Dear Patreon members, would you like to be involved in a super secret playtest?" You know, a hundred said yes, so that was like the core of the first group. And now I don't even know, five, six, eight hundred. We opened it up to all the backers on a, the Tome of Beast 3 Kickstarter. And we have hundreds and hundreds of groups. And not everyone will write a report. And, and some people just, you know, say, I'd like to. And then their lives get busy or, you know, everyone's got other things going on. But it's amazing the the responses we get, the thoughtful responses, and occasionally the this monster was boring next, which is useful feedback in its own way. Right. Mm. Um, some of the best feedback we got on the first Tome of East playtest was this monster is perfectly balanced and totally boring. Right. And they were talking about a sea snake monster and they had a big nautical campaign and they were happy to get that play test. And they just said, yeah, you know, the fight was a good fight. It felt, on par for difficulty for our our tier and and we don't have any complaints about that it was just fight 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 we were hoping that it would have some clever trick up its sleeve and then we went back and we looked at it and said yeah it really needs something else we pretty much tore down the abilities section and rebuilt it um which was for me a real eye-opening part of playtest because to that point we had been far more concerned about matching the power curve and the balance. And we had given less attention to flair, flavor as expressed in mechanics. Mm. When a monster knows how to do something terribly clever, like, I don't know, gouge your eyeball. Uh, What is that in mechanics terms, right? Are we blinding? Um, 
those special abilities, those things are generally what gets remembered, not did it take four hits to down it or, or five. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, I think as a part of uh, designing a monster like that, it, it makes sense within its own, it's sort of internally consistent with its own sort of ecology or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. Although you don't need to get necessarily bogged down in the narrative of whys and wherefores of a magical sea snake existing, but right. for, the, oh, for we... the sake of argument, at least if it's internally consistent, um, right. you know, that that's kind of roots it in... Um, in the world that you're playing in and uh, it makes it easier to suspend disbelief. Right, yes. And, and the intent with them is these monsters should be able to appear just about anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Or anywhere that supports an ocean that could have a sea snake or anywhere sure. that supports tomb-friendly tomb undead. But we're not trying to make them specific to a particular culture or locale. No. Um, it's like this will fit in any desert. This will fit in any glacier. Yeah, kind of leave the leave the insertion of it into the world to the DM kind of thing. Yes, uh, but as long as it's, as I say, it's the internal consistency that it's sort of so you, this is native to this kind of habitat. Yeah, therefore it can do X, Y, Z. We got lucky on a couple of our habitat choices. Um, we did a bunch of jungle monsters in. Tomb of Beast 1, not long before Tomb of Annihilation showed up. Mm -hmm. And we did a bunch of Arctic, northern waste type stuff just before Rhyme of the Frostmaiden showed up. Really good so <laughs> we, yeah, I mean, I swear to you, no one at Wizards said, yeah, we're doing this next. But we were like, there seems to be a lack of jungle monsters. We'll do a few more jungle monsters in this one. There's not quite enough Arctic monsters. Let's do a few of those. And looking back, yeah, it was, it was luck. <laughs> And there's other things in there as well that are are sort of divergent from the standard D and D tropes. Mm -hmm. There, there's a section in most of the Tome of Beasts that's fae lords and ladies. Cobalt Press is known for doing a fair bit of support for the fae monster type, and you know, fae lords and ladies. They're like demon lords and archdevils, but they look nicer and speak more politely, <laughs> but they can be just as much trouble. So um, so we've done, I don't know, six or eight of those so far. And then we did a set of animal lords mm -hmm. too, sort of, you know, Lord of uh, the Lady of Cats or the Toad King or um, the Scorpion Queen, any number of those kinds of slightly fairy tale-ish, but... Uh, but familiar from high fantasy, right? Yeah, those animal lords. I've I've come up with so many ideas just from like looking through that book alone and seeing like the animal lords and all those types of things. In fact, one I forget what book it is. Maybe it's the creature codex. You have like the droth and the oth and all of yes. those. Yes, I have. I mean, those things spawned essentially an entire idea that became um, a sci-fi podcast a sci-fi D, D podcast i run now called eclipse oh really like all that spawned from just reading through that section of that book you know at first i'm like oh this is a cool monster and then i'm reading the lore and then i have another idea and the next thing you know i'm linking it to like how can i make a sci-fi fantasy thing and yes and it turns into a podcast and a whole campaign and it's just awesome how these books like you just flipping through them you can use the stats or you can get an idea from the stats or you can write a whole story based on you know, two or three sentences mm -hmm. worth of lore that you came up with. Exactly. Well, those, I think, were the product of John Sawatsky. Uh, I think he was the designer on all the shop uh, as a 
planar, somewhat science fictional ooze race with all this great society and structure. And, and John is, well, he was, he's always been super inventive. He's wrote a series called Prepared for Cobalt Press, um, which were all one shots. And man, I have, I have come to just adore adventures that you can run in a night or two rather than long campaigns. I used to run year long campaigns, two year campaigns. And now I am all about the short and sweet stuff that you can drop in on a Friday night and, and wrap up. And it was surprising to me that he wrote such a galactic spanning, you know, mega plot line inspiring monster when his adventure designs are all super compact. Um, but I appreciate both directions and the prepared stuff has proven really popular. Actually, all right, so now to jump into a totally different direction. Cobalt Press has recently launched an online play program uh, called Cobalt Chronicles. And we're taking all those one shots and running them once, once a month online on, on the Roll20 platform. Uh, and we'll see how that goes. It's uh, the first one was just about a week ago and the next one's here in February. So at the end of the month. Um, and I suspect Mr. Sawatsky's adventures will feature prominently in that series of online uh, organized play things for Cobalt Chronicles. Sounds awesome. Is that something you like ever DM yourself or is, do you just have a whole bunch of people on your payroll working that? Uh, it's run the way kind of um, things like Adventurers League is run. It's mostly volunteers, but the people who are sort of setting it up and, you know, doing like tickets and assigning tables and providing assets and unlocking the Roll20, um, you know, pre-gens for, for the table. Uh, those folks are, are Cobalt uh, staffers, but the, the GMs and the players are pretty much from the community. An event that runs once a month is not, <laughs> it's not frequent enough to be someone's full-time gig, but, mm. uh, but the game masters are paid and the, you know, the tickets are, well, I think they're reasonable. I don't know. Uh, they're just like bald man games with adventures league. You pay your 10 or 15 bucks for your seat. And most of it goes to the game master and you're guaranteed a, a, a professional table. Like we mm. vet the, the game masters. Um, you can't just show up and run it you actually have to agree to a code of conduct and read the materials. And if, if after your first outing, everyone says he showed up late, he was underprepared and then, you know, didn't know the rules and spent half of it and look up, you know, you don't get invited back, but that's not been the case. The people who've shown up, some of them are professional um, streamers who have actual play games. A few of them are uh, freelance game designers. A few of them just, run a lot of online play and love it um so we've been very fortunate that the cobalt chronicles dms have been um superb is is really the way to put it mm. so we'll see where that where that goes and how that comes out over time but we're going to run one every month this year i think um, unless people don't want them uh, but that that doesn't seem to be the case <laughs> good <laughs> yeah i mean more places to play is better yeah, absolutely I miss conventions. We went to Gen Con last year, but it was half the size, you know. So any of those places to connect with people are great. Yeah, definitely. Well, we have a lot more to ask Wolfgang about Cobalt Press and all their awesome products. 
But first, we're going to take a short break to thank our sponsors. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we are back. So before the break, we were talking to Wolfgang all about all the awesome products at Cobalt Press. We discussed the immense library of creatures that they have created for DMs to run in their campaigns. And then we started talking about how it inspires all sorts of uh, stories and adventures. And, and I know it's inspired me a lot to take, you know, take one thing here, homebrew a little bit, or in the case of the Droth and the Shoth and all that kind of stuff, come up with entire campaign ideas. So though I am most familiar with your, your books of monsters, Cobalt Press does way more than just create monster blocks. Uh, what other types of things do you do over there on the Cobalt Press? Sure. Well, um, I mentioned the Warlock Patreon, which is just, you know, a dollar a month gets you a bunch of new spells, creatures, locations, uh, one-shot adventures every month. Um, we also do, of course, uh, things like Deep Magic, which I alluded to earlier, but it's 700 new spells and like 19 Divine Domains and about a dozen wizard specialties and so on, right? It's everything to expand the spellcasting side of the game. Um, and a lot of deep magic is particular flavors that fit in almost any fantasy campaign, like rune magic or hieroglyphics or dragon magic or elementalism. Um, and one of the things I love about that is we had a freelancer writing, oh, I don't know, a quarter of the book who we thought was mega talented. Um, and he wrote the elementals and a genie lord warlock patron and a bunch of other things. Um, and his name is Dan Dillon. And now he is a, a designer at Wizards of the Coast. So, you know, the kobolds get to brag. We knew him when <laughs> Wizards of the Coast stole him away from Cobalt Press. Um, but no, he did great work um, on Deep Magic making uh making more schools of spells available right making more options for every spell casting class so that's one we're we're really proud of because it is so broadly useful to players it's not quite a second player's handbook because it doesn't do anything for the martial classes mm. really but if you're a spell slinger it's probably worth a look um the other thing we did just recently is we we've published campaign settings that are a little i don't know outside the realm of standard high fantasy with a european tilt mm. right um last year we published southlands uh which is a campaign setting a player's guide and a set of adventures um called city of cats um it's Egyptian and Arabian and African flavored fantasy, right? So I, I mean, you can shorthand it as sort of tropical or desert fantasy, something like that. Um, there's God Kings under pyramids. There's magic carpets. There's cat folk. Well, there's a whole city of cats. I already gave that away. Southlands has been um, really well received and it just came out uh, in the fall last year. And 
we thought we had printed enough, but it is basically out of print at this point, um, which is a nice place to be as a business and a sad place to be because I want everybody to be able to get their hands on it. But uh, it's a fun set of adventures in City of Cats. Uh, the player options include things like playable gnolls, um, some variant cat folk, um, and a, a genie born, a gin born race. So I'm really pleased with that because it's a kind of fantasy that I spent a lot of time with a long time ago when I was writing Al Kadim books, right? Um, I wrote Assassin Mountain and Secrets of the Lamp and some other things for D&D second edition. But, um, but it's a kind of fantasy that you don't get but once in a while. And this is a whole campaign setting. The characters yeah. are from this milieu. They're not visitors, right? Yeah. So I think that changes kind of how it goes. Um, and and in any case, we're, we're probably doing a bunch more support for it uh, because of the warm reception it got. Mm. It's an under, um, um, underrepresented um, field in fantasy. Yes. I mean, it's it's been around, right? Like, But usually it derives from, oh, I don't know, the Thousand and One Nights yeah. or things like The Mummy, right? That Brendan Fraser film mm-hmm. from 20 years ago, which, you know, have fun with ancient Egyptian curses and things. But I don't know. I think we can do more with it. And, and most tabletop RPGs, you know, you want a widely interesting setting that isn't just one flavor. Yeah. As we dug into it, we said, well, we can do Arabian themes. We can do knoll culture themes the knolls get a whole chapter in the the setting book about what's their culture like and they get a whole bunch of subclass stuff in the player's guide Mm. so we've done this a couple of times where we've taken a race that's usually a monster and seen what we can do with it as as a player character Mm. and we did something similar that's kickstarted but not shipped yet sort of my passion project my baby the thing i've wanted to write for 15 years uh it's basically a guide to the shadow plane and i've loved that stuff since the gary gygax days Mm. but no one's ever tried to run a full campaign or do a setting uh book for the plane of shadow and i said well why not cobalt press so uh we put out book of or we kick-started book of ebon tides and it should be out this summer it's still in edits so it'll be some time it's nice to see. It's nice to see the the love being spread uh, beyond the sort of conventional Western European um, fantasy. I mean, we do those too, right? We write those adventures. That's most of it. But I think of them as change ups, mm-hmm. right? Like when I played a, you know, D and D five days a week. Uh, you know, come the weekend, I'd say, well, why don't we play Traveler or why don't we play Call of Cthulhu just to change it up. Um, but D&D is broad enough now. I mean, you can play horror in Ravenloft. Mm-hmm. You can play um, with with Egyptian themes in the Southlands, or you can go into the Plain of Shadows. And it's really heavy on the Fey mm. and the Bear Folk, um, both of which are, I don't know, they're player character races that have proven immensely popular. So there's a a chapter there that expands on them. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I think a, do, a great thing about doing some sort of setting like the Southlands is it's based on like an Egyptian setting, but it's not Egypt. It's still fantasy. So it's oh, not it's like very much fantasy. Yeah, it's not like you need to have knowledge of, of the actual history of this region or be an expert on it. It's just kind of like what everyone seems to imagine when you think of ancient Egypt, you're just expanding on that sort of like idea. And I think that's what's really great about it. It's you don't have to be accurate because it's fantasy. It's not supposed to be accurate. Right. Um, and that is a big part of fun. But the research, I did go buy a book called How to Read Hieroglyphics or, or you know, The Beginner's Guide to Hieroglyphics. And it was a blast to read. And then I realized I was procrastinating on the writing. So, <laughs> um, but it did inspire, there is hieroglyphic magic uh, in that setting. Um, and we do pull a couple of the, better known Egyptian gods in as well. Um, so, you know, it borrows from really ancient history, but um, but yeah, nobody needs to be an Egyptologist or, or an expert in, um, you know, Saharan lore uh, to run a game there. No, but that's, that's the kind of thing, if you really want to, you can bring in yourself, you know, if, that's, if, if it sparks your imagination to the point where you know, you feel inspired to do all that research and bring that in, then that's something that you can do. Or maybe you were raised in that culture, right? Yeah. I mean, the United States in particular, you might know somebody who is from the Middle East or or has some of that background or, or grew up with it. Some of the playtesters in the Southlands region were, uh, there was a group based out of Kuwait um, who had things to say. And it was it was nice to get that feedback from from people who said, well, we know it's all fantasy, but look at this, right? So we did run it past uh, a number of people who are well-versed in the culture, mm. just not to trip ourselves up. No, well, absolutely. That's um, certainly something that you, you need to be um, sensitive to. Yeah. And I mean, yes, we can wave our hands and say it's all fantasy, but we don't, we don't want to offend people. <laughs> well, mm. we were fortunate enough to have some people with that background as writers on the project as well. I think that's that's important. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're a melting pot in the States, mm -hmm. right? So you have people who, who come with that. And the other nice thing is it goes the other way. You have um, one of the nicest letters we got in response to the Southlands was from a fellow who I believe is Moroccan. He said, nobody gets North Africa, but this is pretty close. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, for making a map that feels like what I know, right? Mm. Like you guys did a good job with this. And I'm like, A, there are people playing D&D &D in Morocco. What? And B, oh, good. We didn't mess it up. Um, so that was really interesting because as D&D &D continues to thrive, you know, I Cobalt Press gets letters from strange places like the Philippines or Vietnam, or we had a a school group in India uh, that was asking if we could, you know, provide something. I, I forget what it was exactly. We used to just get letters from the States and Canada, and it's it's certainly gone much broader than that. Yeah, my experience with streaming, doing a show called uh, MBA, we would run uh, one-off encounters every week uh, live, uh, presented as a sports broadcast. I'm your host, Flex Gristle. And tonight we'll be facing mainly the guests that we would bring on would be people like yourself, game designers or other streamers. And the 
breadth of places that people came from. We had guests from Indonesia who'd stay up until four in the morning to play. Um, oh. All over Europe and, yeah, just ev- all over the world. It's, just, it's great to see a hobby that we, and an interest that we all evidently share just being right. so widespread and to get those kind of diverse um, opinions and inputs into your um gaming is um really a really valuable thing yeah yeah it's been a lot of fun a lot of discovery and you know frankly there's talent worldwide so why limit ourselves uh to guests from here or there um but yeah settings are one thing um i guess i should make some mention of the fact that we do have a european setting that's well supported which is midgard um that setting is coming on 10 years old this year sometime like october will be like the 10 year mark and has been through five games four game systems dragon age 3.5 pathfinder and fifth wow it's been around (laughs) um but it's been all fifth edition the last six years or so it has 200 short adventures supporting it so it's extremely accessible and playable. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's classic fantasy. So that is what people think of when people think of fantasy as a default and whether that's right or wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's where it started, right? Um, D&D started with people in Wisconsin mm-hmm. who, <laughs> right, who said, what do we want? Well, we want a somewhat British, Western European castles, chivalry and foul sorcery type game, yeah. which I think came straight out of, lord of the rings and conan and i mean yeah so it, it as, as a as a somewhat british person myself i can uh, <laughs> you know yes that is i it's totally founded in the the classic british tradition of high fantasy yeah i mean i don't know sprague de camp and lynn carter and oh michael moorcock's a brit though i hear he lives in the states these days so boo (laughs) (laughs) not my not my decision to make but uh (laughs) but i mean those connections to that fantasy tradition and literature is why the default is european fantasy yeah right Um, yeah absolutely it's culturally you know it's a it's a cultural touchstone yeah and of course we plunder ideas from the viking era in midgard with that name right Mm -hmm. but there's also a big chunk that goes back to my roots there's a german heritage section there's a dark forest full of elves there's small crossroads towns like well zobek is the greyhawk of of, or water deep of the setting and it's just like prague or budapest right it's central it's got a river it's not that big um there's mines full of cobalts nearby for some reason. (laughs) Mining lead and silver. So, I mean, and then we decided, yeah, we've done the British, uh, English, French tradition of fantasy so much. Let's, let's make Midgard take on the Vikings, the Germanic things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then just because it is high fantasy an empire full of dragons, dragonborn, dragon rulers, um, coming out of the east and and running over all opposition which puts a bit of tension into the setting and i admit i'm sort of rooting for the dragon empire more often than not because their <laughs> their their peasant levies are all kobolds and their elite folk are all dragonborn and by the time you get to the heavies it's like oh no 
wyvern riders, right? Um, it's a lot of fun to terrify my party with news that <laughs> the Dragon Empire has sent scouts into this region lately. Oh, shoot, right? Are they coming? A brief overview of that army list sent me quaking uh-huh. in my uh, boots. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, right? Like, so that's where I want the mass combat system and I want to haul out the Warhammer minis or something, right? Mm. To, to do that sort of gaming. But different flavors, still in a high fantasy tradition. Um, we've, we've had a lot of fun with Midgard and it just keeps rolling along rather nicely. It's it's not as big a focus as the universal nature of things like deep magic or the Tome mm. of Beasts, but there's a really active community. Oh, and there's a free online map. I should give the cartographer a shout out. Um, Anna Meyer does Greyhawk maps, but she also did a map of Midgard that looks straight out of the pages of, I don't know, National Geographic or something. It's free online if you check midgardmap.cobaltpress.com. You can see the whole world map there. And it's zoomable. There are pop-up city maps that you can open. It's searchable. There's a layer that shows the political stuff. You can like overlay the politics onto the terrain map. And it does wayfinding. If you do point-to-point distances, it will tell you on any path of, I don't know, 20 points or less, how many miles that is. So you can do point-to-point travel. Um, oh, it has ley line magic. All right, you're going to have to stop me on Midgard. It's sort of my... <laughs> wow, I'm, I'm actually... I just brought it up now and looking at it. Yeah, there's a wow. lot there, yeah. right? Like the ruins. And you have to sort of learn to navigate the different layers and the search function. It's easy to find, like, where's the Scarlet Citadel? Oh, it's over here. Great. But it's just fun. It's absolutely beautiful as well. It's really lovingly produced. Anna spent, I don't know, a year, two years. So she's a cartographer who loves Greyhawk. But when we said, would you do Midgard? She was all over it. And and her work is great because in her working life, she was um, a jet pilot, a fighter jet pilot for many years. So looking down at the world from above, I think comes kind of naturally to her. I think she still mm. plays a fair bit of flight sims, right? Like that that uh, bird's eye view is just, she seems to just get it. And, and yeah. like how terrain flows and what feels natural. Um, so I, I can't say enough good things about it. She also did a map of the Southlands um, that we hope to bring into this online format at some point. But yeah, it's it's loving work. It's really detailed work. And uh, it gives you a good sense of sort of what the setting looks like. It's clearly sort of Europe bent through a twisted mirror. And it often confuses newcomers. They're like, well, it's just Europe kind of. I'm like, yeah, if Europe had an empire of elves and an empire of dragon folk, sure, just like Europe. And the closer you zoom into it, you're like, wait, what happened to France? Yeah, the, and the less it actually did... looks like you're right. <laughs> Again, as a uh, European. <laughs> <laughs> it, it rapidly becomes obvious that the general shapes are there. And it, yeah. it was a deliberate design choice early because it's easy to tell people, oh, well, this is sort of like the Black Forest or this is sort of like Italian city-states. And people can glom onto that as a player, right? Mm-hmm. 
or this is the Russian steppe and I want to play a rider. Okay. Or these are the Viking lands. Yeah. Um, but then as you spend any time with the setting, you see, oh, there are things in it that don't map to the real world and aren't meant to, but are delightful fantasy bits. Yeah. So we have fun with that. It's kind of a useful frame of reference, but not really much more than that. It's its own it's its own thing. It stands on right. its own. But... Uh, Miss Stara, the known world setting from long ago, did something very similar, right? Where many of the cultures were inspired by european cultures but mm-hmm. then they would throw in things like this is the orcs of thar okay where's your european equivalent there isn't one. Oh, you've not met the uh the subterranean orcs of london <laughs> right the, uh, the Morlocks <laughs> who hide out beneath iceland sure oh i got spare penny for an orc i hear games workshop employs them <laughs> profitably yeah, it, was, it was me the whole time. Just <laughs> mask off. Here we go, Gov. There's nothing wrong with that because all of Middle Earth from Lord of the Rings is was roughly based off Europe. And you know, if, if people have a problem with this setting, you just mentioned how there's just so many settings that, that even just from Cobalt Press yep. they can turn to instead that are, you know, something completely different from this. Well, the original design direction for Midgard was, all right, people keep asking us for a setting, but we're going to make sure it's easy to rip off for people's homebrew. Yeah. Right. So we said, okay, here's a region, here's a town. And we actually, one of my favorite bits is the forest. It's called the Margrave Forest. It's across the river from uh, the core city of Zobek. And it's an ancient, mystical, somewhat magical forest with a little bit of its own intelligence, customs, magic, right? Um, And we did a whole book on it called Tales of the Old Margrave that is basically meant to be picked up and dropped into anybody's forest, right? If you want your forest to feel a little more magical, easy peasy, here it is. There are woodcutters and coaching inns and lost ruins and griffin nests. And there's like eight adventures in it and a whole bunch of NPCs and magic and new monsters but yeah it's a midgard book and if you are playing in the setting you'll say, oh there's the margrave forest that's easy but none of it requires you to have absolutely all the connections to what goes around the forest so i think just from the beginning because we all come from a homebrewing tradition and most of the early Cobalt Press products were more like monster books or standalones. Um, we didn't want a setting that that was hard to adapt. Something like Spelljammer or Dark Sun is a blast, but you can't exactly rip off big chunks of it and put it into a, you know standard European fantasy or mm. standard high fantasy. Like Dark Sun and the Empire of the Elves. Well, uh, I don't know, right? Blasted Wastes. So, um, yeah, those were early decisions, man. Those were 10 years ago kind of decisions, but they've, they've served us well. We have Midgard fans who are like, yeah, I buy all that stuff and I just take the bits I love. And I think that's a perfectly good way to run it. Mm-hmm. Are there any settings that are a little bit out of the ordinary for most role-playing games, especially Dungeons and Dragons that maybe Cobalt Press has not gotten the chance to really dive into, but that you've thought about? Uh, we have sort of a semi-open secret that we keep thinking about doing an Asian setting, right? Something 
either dealing with India or Southeast Asia or Chinese, Japanese, but that's such a huge ask um, that we've never really, never committed to publishing it. Right. <laughs> and it maybe it's just slightly too distinct from, from our, our core stuff. Mm. Um, but I don't know that we've looked at stuff like that. We've looked at science fiction a couple of times, um, sort of a science fantasy, Star Warsy kind of direction. But as long as you've got things like Starfinder and Star Wars out there, uh, hard to compete. Right. Um, and there, there has been some rattling talk about a blasted wastes gamma world meets. I don't know, uh, meets the Mage Wars, meets um, uh, the Reign of Colored Fire, Blasted Lands, and Greyhawk, right? Um, some sort of post-apocalyptic fantasy. Mm. But if Wizards ever publishes Dark Sun, probably the minute we decide we're going to do sort of a, <laughs> a survival fantasy that week is the week wizards will say that's it dark sun's back baby and we'll just slink away quietly because <laughs> dark sun's pretty great um but yeah we've looked at a number of other directions um for now i mean we've got our hands full of settings we don't need a whole lot of new settings with the southlands being fresh mm. and new and the shadow realm coming up uh, later this year, both of which we think are going to appeal to a smaller group than the Welcome to the Realms, Welcome to Midgard, Welcome to Greyhawk kind of audience. Um, but we'll still have um, support for those over time. And we'll we'll see, right? Like Southlands outran its initial print run, which is certainly a very good sign. Um, and it's possible that the Book of Ebon Tides and the Shadow Realm go the same way people are fairly hungry for interesting settings mm. settings with some depth and i mean like i said midgard has 200 published adventures for it it's ridiculous uh and they're great most of at least half of those or a third of those come from that warlock patreon i mentioned so they're short adventures i'm not going to say they're campaigns but you know you get 10 or 12 pages a map a new monster new magic items and you're off to the races absolutely so. yeah <laughs> that's that's plenty to be getting on with <laughs> right I, the thing is with so many people there's somebody has uh lou anders one of the the novelist lou anders created a spreadsheet of all the adventures because he just wanted it for himself he wanted like i want forest terrain at third level and it would give him one based off of the cobalt press adventure selection and I think that thing is maintained. It's an Excel spreadsheet of all things. We ought to turn it into a database on the Cobalt Press website or something where people can just say third level forest and we'll say, here are your four choices. Well, if you literally have a spreadsheet that allows you to set those parameters, that's indicative of the breadth of, <laughs> of encounters. We put you've one out every month for the last, whatever, 10 years, right? Yeah. And it just adds up. Yeah. Um, I think we started doing them. They're little black and white adventures because Chaosium did those those scholarly style black and white pamphlet books. I can't remember the name of the series this moment, but um, but they were great. It's just a tiny little nugget of something enjoyable um, for a couple of bucks, right? So 
I mentioned Call of Cthulhu because it's the game I play to get away from the day job of Dungeons and Dragons, right? <laughs> I love a bit of Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, it's good fun. All right. Well, unfortunately, we are already starting to run out of time on this episode of Dice Talk. Done. Wolfgang, um, you have made this interview immensely easy and interesting for yes, both of us. Time has you. just absolutely flown by. I have rattled on. I'm happy to rattle on. <laughs> Is there anything else that you really wanted to mention to some of our listeners? Um, anything you want to plug real quick? I know we talked about the Tome of Beast 3 Kickstarter sure. that everybody should totally check out. Yeah, that one ends on Wednesday, February 23rd. It's got something like 7,000 backers at this point. We would love to have a few more. Um, it comes with minis, uh, cardboard stand-up pawns, a hardcover book of adventures featuring monsters from the Tome of Beast 3. Uh, it's well worth your while to check it out. It's got full virtual tabletop support, um, Roll20, Foundry, and elsewhere. And yeah, that's my big plug at the moment. And by all means, please come take a look at the Cobalt Press blog. It's free. We publish content three or four times a week. Or visit us on Instagram or Twitter or or Twitch. Cobalt Chats every Wednesday at noon. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I've had a great time. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. As always, I just wanted to take some time to say thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope that our discussions were able to entertain and inspire you. Do you have an idea for a guest you'd like to hear us interview? Or perhaps there's a topic you'd like to hear us discuss on the show. We want to hear about it. You can send us comments, questions, or just say hi by going to DiceTalkPod.com. There, you can stay up to date on all the latest Dice Talk news and streaming schedules. Also, be sure to go to MajesticGoose.com, where you can check out all the awesome tabletop shows that we offer on the network. If you want to find us on social media, you can do so on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search Dice Talk and start following us today. You can also get in touch with us by sending us an email to dicetalkshow at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. They really help to get us to the top of the charts and get our name out there. Leaving us a review lets us know how you feel about the show, and it really is the best way you can support us right now. Don't forget to tell your friends about us, and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. I'll talk to you next time on Dice Talk. A Majestic Goose Podcast. Hi. Hi.